0: Hey everyone, I'm Justin Kinney, and this is the first ever episode of Nutshell Politics. So I am thrilled to be here with you. I really appreciate everyone tuning in and listening. Now, as I said, this is my first official episode, so before I kick off an international politics topic, which I'll be doing for future episodes, I wanted to give a little background of myself, kind of establish why I'm doing this, how I got to this point, that sort of thing. Uh, So here goes. I grew up in North Carolina, uh, just outside of Charlotte, with my parents and my sister. And when I was young, I had some very high aspirations, politically, I should say. My parents will tell you that the very first answer I ever gave to the question of what do you want to be when you grow up was king. Very simple. That's it. Just wanted to be king. I, I saw myself as being particularly apt for politics in some sort of a monarchical form. Now king of what, you might ask? and I, That's a good question. I, I didn't really know. I Nothing in particular, maybe everything. I just wanted to be king. I, I knew that I was the right person for that job. As you can imagine, I was pretty crushed when I got a little bit older and realized that was a bit of a pipe dream. Monarchical Reign, I found out, is hereditary. It doesn't just get passed down to whoever wants it. And... You know, in the rare case that it isn't hereditary, I can't exactly count on being able to pull a sword from a stone or having some watery tart throw a sword at me like King Arthur. So my dream was crushed, but my political ideas and aspirations matured over time. I started to move in different directions. I, I got a bachelor's degree in psychology, very interested in how people think. I'm a master's degree in forensic science, uh, and now I'm currently working on a doctorate in political science. I teach international relations and foreign policy terrorism studies at a university. I, I've traveled. I backpacked across Europe one summer, You know, really enjoying learning about different cultures and how everything fits together that way. I even published my first book, a mystery novel. It's called Precipice. It's under an author's pseudonym I use, which is J. Robert Kinney, uh, with more books to come in the pipeline. But I've been very interested in kind of how everything works politically, culturally, theologically. and that's kind of where where I got to this place where I am now, where I'm studying politics at a university. But you might kind of wonder why someone like me, you know stressed about working on a PhD dissertation, you know teaching, my writing, etc, would want to add yet another thing to his plate with podcasting and, and I think that's really solid question. It's it's a time consuming endeavor. It just takes a lot of effort to to throw into a podcast. But but here's the thing. Podcasting is this kind of unique avenue. It's a, a place where I can tell the stories that I think are important. I can explain concepts and context. I really think people need to know, you know, the things that are happening in the world that are truly meaningful. You know, as a population, I, I think we've become so reliant on the mainstream media to tell us what's happening in the world. And while the media does sometimes do an admirable job of this, ultimately what they cover, how they cover it, how much they cover it, is driven by ratings. It's a competitive market out there for media companies. There's heavy incentive to keep the focus on domestic issues. Those things sell better to the American public, I think, for obvious reasons. And there's also this incentive to move quickly from issue to issue to, to keep people's attention. You know, they never really dwell long enough on any given topic to provide context that I believe is necessary to really understand what's going on Uh, and increasing superficiality of the topics that do get covered as well. So I hope to kind of fill the gap, fill that gap with this podcast. I want to provide that context, that focus on foreign issues that we here still need to know, things that, that still affect us. Uh, you know whether that's how the rise in Islamist terrorism can be tied back to this 40-year-old revolution, why the Syrian civil war spiraled out of control the way that it did. You know what the big deal is with the Chinese militarization in the South China Sea. Uh, why is Israel such an important piece of real estate for so many people, or or what exactly is going on in in the enigmatic country of North Korea? You know conflict, terrorism, trade deals. Uh, the battle for hegemony, the role and breakdown of religion and theology on the global stage, the importance of understanding cultural differences you know, when analyzing various political situations. These are all issues that the American public really needs to know. Because we live in this world of increasing globalization, you know, international ties and relationships mean more to us today than they ever have before. And in a world where the media is largely failing to educate us on some of these cultural issues and contexts. I want to help fix that. So that's it. In a nutshell, that's why I want to do this. I think it's important. I think it's a, a growing hole of understanding made worse by these kind of media battles for viewers. Uh, it's it's an issue where, where I personally am very fascinated with how everything works together, uh, politically and culturally. And it, I think this is a an area that I can really do my part to help. And of course, too, podcasting is it's one of those few projects where no one can tell me what to do or how to do it. And I, I think that's beautiful. So uh, so with that intro behind this, I want to kick this off. Uh, this is episode one. Uh, so I've picked kind of an easy one right out of the gate. You can get an idea of what this podcast will be like. Uh, I want to spend a few minutes talking about nuclear weapons. Now, a nuclear weapon is essentially an explosive device, a bomb or missile that uses nuclear energy to cause an explosion. It's using, it's deriving the, the destructive force from a nuclear reaction, uh, either fission or a combination of fission and fusion. And I'm not going to get into the details of like how nuclear engineering works. That's not my field. But a nuclear weapon is what's considered an absolute weapon. And this is a name that was given to it only a few months after Hiroshima by a, a famous political theorist named Bernard Brody. Now, the idea here is that traditional weapons are considered relative weapons. They can be compared to one another, give or take. So, you know, I have more tanks than you, or I have more guns than you, or soldiers than you, bombs. You know, training and strategy obviously play roles, but more or less, the country that has either the more weapons or the better traditional weapons will win the war, right? But a nuclear bomb changes that. It changes the calculus, If I have a nuclear bomb, even a single one, it doesn't really matter how many men you have or how many guns you have or tanks or even regular bombs you have. I'm still capable of winning because it's a unique weapon that is so much more destructive than any previous weapon that it's forever changed how we view warfare to the point where I said, even a single one makes you a global power. It makes any rivals kind of rethink going to war with you, all on its own. And this is how a country like, say, North Korea, which really has no business being a global power alongside the likes of United States and Russia, France, and China, somehow still manages to command such a tension on the world stage. Now, there is a concept in nuclear theory and in politics called a broken arrow. And this is where I really want to focus today on it. Uh, we're going to do a little bit more on nuclear theory in another episode, but the broken arrow is an incident in, or as you say, it's a, um, a military term almost that refers to an accidental event that involves nuclear weapons or warheads or components, which doesn't re- result in a nuclear war. So these could be things like theft of a nuclear weapon, an accidental or unexplained detonation, uh, the loss of a weapon, uh, those sorts of things. So even though they don't really result in nuclear war, broken arrows are are really bad, very dangerous situations. And this is something that all countries have had to deal with at one point or another that have had nukes. The United States itself has been involved in 32 of these. We've been the culprit in 32 of these weapons. You know, we're a first world, major power, a hegemon, a superpower. And we have 32 broken arrow instances, which includes, I should say, 11 U.S. warheads that have been straight up lost. Seven of those were lost inside the U.S. borders. Uh, eight of them have never been found. So there's still eight nuclear weapons that the United States has lost that we have never found. That's that's crazy. And that's, I mean, that's way too many to discuss individually, uh, which not to mention so so many that it's hard to believe almost. But I wanted to spend today touching on a couple of these cases that are some of the worst. So the first one I want to touch on took place in 1958. This was off the coast of Savannah, Georgia, uh, in the waters off of Tybee Island, actually. So there was a a practice exercise, a simulated combat mission, like a training flight, that was taking place, and there was a B-47 bomber that was included. It had a Mark 15 hydrogen bomb on board, a a single one uh, that was about 7,600 pounds, and as part of the exercise, it somehow managed to collide with an F-86 that was also part of the exercise. This is a fighter plane, and so the fighter plane crashes. Its crew member ejects safely, but the B-47 managed to stay airborne, at least temporarily. It was losing height very fast, and it was starting, they were starting to get a little worried that you know, if there was an emergency landing, there might have been there might be a possible detonation. And so to protect the crew, they elected to simply jettison the bomb out the back. Uh, they were about seventy, two hundred feet above the water when it was released, and it plummeted very rapidly, landed in the water just off the coast of Tybee Island. Now it sank into the water, obviously, it's very heavy, sank many, probably as much as 15 feet below the silt at the bottom of Wausau Sound, if you're familiar with that area. Now, it's quite likely it wasn't carrying the plutonium core like, installed that was needed to carry out the full explosion, um, although, weirdly enough, there's some question about that. Uh, some people claim it was there, some people claim it wasn't. Probably wasn't, but we're not really sure. This one is really interesting, though, because... Well, when the, when the bomb struck the ocean, they didn't see an explosion. And like I said, it, it sank very quickly. And they have mounted several recovery efforts to try to find it. Uh, several at the time and every handful of years, they talk about going out and finding it again. You know, just a few years ago, they actually tried to narrow down the possible resting spot of this bomb to an area about the size of a football field. But you know, they've trawled the area many, many times and they cannot find the bomb. It's totally missing. They believe it's probably somewhere as I said, as much as 15 feet below the silt at the bottom of the the sound there. But it's been unable to be found ever since. Now they do routinely kind of check to make sure that you know the water isn't testing higher for radioactivity and that sort of thing, which would you know p- prove dangerous, but also help them track down where the bomb is. But this is a bomb that's been missing now for about 60 years, and still nothing. To this day they've never found it. Now the next one I want to touch on took place actually the same year, 1958, uh, just about a month after the one off of Tybee Island, and this one took place in South Carolina. And In this case you had a, another B-47, this is a jet from Hunter Air Force Base that took off uh, from Savannah, Georgia, or that area, around 4:30 in the afternoon, and it was scheduled to actually fly to the UK and then later to North Africa as part of a military operation at the time called Operation Snowflurry. Now, what happened here was the captain on board the aircraft basically saw in the cockpit they had a fault light that came up that was showing that the bomb harness locking pin had not engaged so he kind of reached around the bomb to to pull himself up but he accidentally managed to grab the emergency release pin grabbed the wrong thing and the nuclear bomb dropped to the floor of the of the b-47 now the weight of the bomb being very very heavy forced the bomb bay doors open again accidentally and dropped the bomb about 1500 feet or sorry 15,000 feet down to the ground below now, this bomb actually hit the ground and detonated partially. Uh, they had the conventional w- weapons that were on board that detonated. Uh, the reason it didn't go nuclear is the, the fissile nuclear core was being stored elsewhere on the aircraft, so it wasn't on the bomb at the time. But the conventional explosives detonated. I uh, left a crater about 70 feet by 35 feet, uh, sets to be 70 feet wide by 35 feet deep. And the explosion actually resulted in several injuries. It injured uh, three young girls who were playing nearby. It actually destroyed their playhouse entirely. Injured the three girls as well as uh, I believe their father and their mother and another one of their sons that was nearby. It also damaged multiple nearby buildings. Uh, the U.S. Air Force actually got sued by the the family of these of these victims and were paid out roughly the equivalent of like four to five hundred thousand dollars total in today's money. You can actually still see the crater today. It still exists. It's a little hard to get to at the moment uh, because it's on private property with no like public access to it, but it it is still there. It's a little overgrown by vegetation, Uh, but this was one of the most famous instances. It actually made international news at the time, Uh, but this was again far from the last one that took place. Uh, There was another big one that took place about three years later. This is in 1961 in Goldsboro North Carolina. So one, one stayed up. This was a B-52 Stratofortress. Now it was carrying two different bombs on it. Both were Mark 39s, uh, which were three to four megatons. Now, just for comparison's sake, uh, each bomb was about 250 times as powerful as the Hiroshima bomb that we dropped during World War II. So these were both very, very big bombs. And what happened here is that this B-52 managed to receive some sort of a fuel leak. I'm not quite sure how that happened, but it was losing fuel very fast. And so the aircraft was directed to make an emergency landing at a Seymour Johnson Air Force Base, if you're familiar with that. But as it was going down, the pilots somehow lost control of the aircraft. They weren't able to keep it in a stable descent. And so the pilot basically ordered his crew to eject. And then the plane ultimately crashed. Now, this is actually kind of a sad story. Several people did die in this one. Uh, One didn't survive the ejection uh, somehow didn't land safely two others died in the crash i guess they didn't eject in time uh there were five that did eject safely and managed to, to land okay but what they reported is that when they landed they looked at the plane and they they saw the plane actually break up before its crash so it broke up in in midair and when it broke up the bombs obviously that were on board fell And so this payload of these two Mark 39, you know, thermonuclear bombs uh, were released and fell to the ground. Now, they were released from a height somewhere between about 1,000 and 2,000 feet. Not 100% sure on that, uh, again, because there weren't people on board anymore. And three of the four army mechanisms on one of the bombs actually activated, which, but even though this wasn't what it was supposed to do, it actually managed to be very useful because one of those mechanisms that managed to trigger a parachute and so the one bomb deployed about a hundred foot diameter parachute which allowed the bomb to hit the ground with very little damage and this bomb was actually found intact standing upright its parachute got caught in a tree on the way down. Now, as I said, there were multiple army mechanisms that triggered one did not, which is pretty much what saved us from having a nuclear explosion in Goldsboro, North Carolina. Very, very thankful for that. Pretty much all the mechanisms failed except for this last one. And that last mechanism is what prevented the bomb from going off. Now, as I said, there was a second bomb on board. This one did not have the parachute that deployed. And so the second bomb actually dove and plunged straight into a muddy farmer's field at about 700 miles per hour so it hit the ground very very hard but the speed actually probably caused it to disintegrate without detonating any, any of its conventional explosives and it was broken up into many many pieces some of those pieces were never recovered they did thankfully manage to get a hold of the core back as well as a couple other pieces the, the tail and, and a couple other things too now this bomb was partially armed when it left the aircraft, but it did not fully arm. and the, the But the evacuation of the second bombs, and the last components, was abandoned. There was uh, groundwater flooding in that area, and they, they couldn't get to all of it. So most of the thermonuclear stage parts, including some of the uranium and plutonium, were left in place, uh, which are still in that farmer's field to this day probably in the neighborhood of 180 feet below the surface, sank into the mud. Now, had either of these bombs detonated, we would have essentially lost eastern North Carolina, the effects and the radiation of which would have been felt states away. So this was a pretty big deal, and it was very, very lucky that it didn't go off. Uh, the This particular incident, though, did cause quite a few reforms in things like how you design B-52s or how you design some of these army mechanisms. So it did have kind of a lasting legacy uh, because of this. Now, as I said, this, there was been 32. There's been other cases, other parts of the country. There was a crash near Yuba City, Cali- California, that had some new nuclear bombs on board. Uh, there was one Savage Mountain, which is near, which is in Maryland, kind of near Barton, Maryland. Uh, there was the famous Damascus Titan missile explosion. Uh, that took place uh, in kind of rural Arkansas. And there have been quite a few even outside the United States as well. I've been focusing on the U.S. ones, but the U.S. is not the only culprit here. You know, there have been quite a few other countries that have had problems. Uh, As many as 50 nuclear weapons were lost. I, I mean, just straight up lost during the Cold War, a lot from the Soviet Union. The Soviets were reportedly working on something called a suitcase nuke at the time. These are nuclear weapons that have a relatively small yield, you know, maybe destroy a city block instead of a whole city. But the idea here is they were portable enough to be carried in a suitcase. hence the name. So they were something you could really kind of wheel around with you and carry. When the USSR fell, many of these nuclear suitcase nukes were lost. Now, thankfully, those devices would not be usable today due to due to degradation of the materials. But the fact that nuclear weapons have just vanished from superpowers is a pretty terrifying thought. And it's what underscores a lot of the argument that many p- political scientists and policymakers will argue that we should be focused on non-proliferation, the big non-proliferation treaty you know, that encompasses most of the world. And this idea that if if a major superpower can't keep safe control of their nuclear weapons you know can we really trust other states that may, may not have the same material capabilities to do the same now in the next episode I want to touch a little bit on nuclear weapon theory and we'll get into the idea of nuclear weapons as deterrence or something called nuclear deterrence theory it's a, a very influential theory that's underscored a lot of nuclear policy f- for really decades but the exploration of that theory we'll have to wait for another time. I'm going to go ahead and uh, end this episode here. I want to really thank everyone for listening and sticking with me through the first episode of hopefully many more to come. I really hope you enjoyed it. I look forward to next time. Uh, If you'd like to follow me on social media, my Twitter handle is at Justin R underscore Kinney. You can also track me on Facebook. I have a Facebook page under J Robert Kinney, which is what I write my fiction novels under. Check out my book Precipice on Amazon. Follow me on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter. Uh, But until next time, this is Justin Kinney of Nutshell Politics, and I'm signing off. Thanks so much for listening, guys.